to stop you from thinking that there's only one or two ways of making money, there's actually effectively infinite ways to do it. So, hello everybody. This is Dominic Neshi, and we've got Adam Gear from uh, EG Funds Management. Now, Adam, I, I spoke to him earlier today, and uh, you know, it's probably a little less embarrassing me saying it again, but. I'm a fan of his for a very long time, and I've seen him as like a, a faraway mentor. I, um, I really, really respect his business. They've been operating, or you've been operating for more than about 20-odd years, um, and you've got billions under management, $3.2 in assets, but then a $2.1 billion development pipeline. Um, that, for me, wasn't the reason why I wanted Adam on the show. It was, in fact, that when you follow Adam and you you talk to people that know him, everybody has a really nice thing to say about him. And you can see that in, in many ways, he feels like a philosopher. He leaves really nice, wisdomous notes behind. And you'll always learn something talking from to him. So it was my hope to do this podcast, learn something today, and, and pass on some of your knowledge to our greater audience. So thank you. Thank you very much. That's a very generous introduction and I'll do my very best to pass on whatever wisdom I have. I've got to say that um, you are spot on in describing me um, as a philosopher. I, I often say um, in more confessional moments that um, I happen to be a businessman. I love it. Um, but my true vocation and my true love is um, philosophy in its broadest sense. I'm very interested in the question, why are we here? What's the meaning of life? And I'm interested in philosophy. I'm interested in religion. I'm interested in poetry. And um, I often look for business people um, who share a love of those things. There's not, a, not, there's not that many of us, but there's a few. And, um, and I certainly love uh, interacting with people who love business, but also love philosophy, poetry, and religion. It's, it's interesting. You've, I've been following you on LinkedIn a while and you leave these very thoughtful notes. And, and as you said, I don't meet many people in your professional capacity that are so open-handed with their wisdom. Um, there was one particular note that actually made me stop and I said, oh, well, this is when I have to start the podcast or at least invite you. You said, questions are the neck that turns the head. If your head is facing the wrong direction, it is difficult for your eyes and brain to generate the right answer. And it's, you know, that I, it went on to then extrapolate on all of that. Um, how, would, how would you appropriate that or how would you sort of use that in, in this, this modern world and in, and in particular with investments? Right. In fact, I, it's a very good question. I, I wrote today, my blog today is exactly on this. If um, you care to check it out, it's, um, it's talking about um, don't ask the question um, is in higher inflation coming, and if so, how high will it be, and if so, for how long? Because these are predictive questions that are very difficult to answer. Ask instead, if higher inflation comes, how will it impact my investment portfolio, and how could I reconfigure my investment portfolio so that it benefits from higher inflation? Questions are very, very important because um, the questions that you ask yourself to direct your activities for the day effectively turn your entire body in one direction. So what you see depends on the question you ask. 
you can literally turn your body 180 degrees by asking a different yeah. question. And that's, I'm, I'm, I, I think Abraham Lincoln um, is famous for saying, if I had um, four hours to cut a tree, I'd spend the first three hours sharpening the ax. And I think um, the ax is the question. So sharpen the ax means get the question right. And then you can spend an hour um, solving the right question is going to help you a lot better than a great answer to the wrong question. Yeah, and, and I think that that's very interesting. And as you said earlier, the, the question that you posed today around inflation, it, I think it's a, it's a poignant one. And I'd like to almost point that question back at you. Right. Um, we've been talking about for a while, yeah, sorry, uh, Dominic. It's not. It's a non-trivial risk is the technical term. So exactly what percentage you want to attribute to it, put it this way. It's, there is a material risk that uh, supply-side constraints because of COVID, um, the desire for uh, countries to, um, to bring to onshore a lot of the manufacturing capability they were once happy to uh, import, and uh, the printing of money at a scale never before seen, particularly in North America, the combination of those factors is already seeing um, significant inflation, inflationary pressures in the United States. Now, if if you're not processing that that's a real risk that it might eventually infect an economy like Australia, you're not thinking straight. There is a risk. I put it, I don't see it as above 50%, but it's somewhere in that 20 to 30% range for me. And when a risk rises to that level, it's time to run scenario analysis. It's time to run stress testing on your portfolio. You should go and have a look at how many your leases are a reference to CPI as opposed to just a fixed number. Now, it has been the fashion in, in the last 10 years with inflation running at sub 3% for people to choose a fixed number like three or four because they feel that that will help them um, escalate their rents higher. Um, I would be switching all of that to CPI plus one um, right now. If you and, if you're, and if you're just a, you know, an everyday investor, this is your first time entering the property market and you, you're hearing a lot of this uh, talk about inflation, is there much that you should be doing or thinking about how do I how do I get ahead of this inflation? What are my risks to me if I'm only sitting in cash or what investment should I be looking at? Well, I mean, cash is a very dangerous place to be today um, just because there's a huge asset price inflation going on and you're earning no interest at all. Um, so look, of course, there are many circumstances where having a large cash balance is appropriate and not the least of which is if you're approaching retirement and you need to rely on retirement savings to live. You don't want to be taking too much risk with your portfolio at that stage. Um, but I think real assets are a great hedge against inflation and, and real estate in particular has demonstrated over a century of data that be it residential or commercial has an, an extremely good track record for protecting you against inflation. And I would have thought whether it's Sydney residential or you get into um, industrial or office leases, which are escalated by reference to CPI, they're both great options for hedging against inflation if it should rise to four, five, six percent as a result of the forces I mentioned earlier. 
That's, it's very interesting to think about that. It's an environment that we haven't experienced for a long time. I, I've, I've only really experienced uh, one significant crash and then you know a couple growth spurts. Um, you've been doing this longer than I have, so you can probably remember a time when interest rates were above five or six percent. And um, is this a consideration now that you're 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 starting to think about? Do you think that we're going to be reverting to a time where we will see interest rates go above five, six, seven percent again? Um, there's no imminent threat of that. Um, I think that um, the abundance of money and um, the monetary policy settings of the federal government and uh, to re-stimulate the economy. I just, I'm guessing that the, the Reserve Bank's um, balance of policy will be towards stimulation because their concern will be uh, returning people to employment um, in the COVID, post-COVID era to the extent that we're about to be vaccinated. Um, there are many into people We've, we've had a relatively painless passage through COVID so far, and, and we should be extremely grateful um, to, to our, well, good fortune and also, I think, good government. Nonetheless, um, the reality is that there's still risks, and, and what we forget is there are many sectors like um, overseas students have not come back, and, uh, and so all of our universities are in distress. Um, there are industries, you know, hotels that are dedicated largely to business travel and international tourism in distress. So there are still sec big sections of the economy that are not normal. And so I see there's going to be dislocation in trying to bring those people back into employment. So my, my balance of risk is still the way I read the economy is I feel interest rates will probably remain sub 5% for the next three years. Beyond that, anything is possible. And um, I'm not a big fan of trying to predict things because I think um, the world is inherently unpredictable. And quite often it throws in a variable completely outside of what they call an exogenous shock comes from outside of the known variables that are being studied. And um, for that reason, I, uh, I don't spend too much time trying to predict the future. I actually think it's, it's a quite a big waste of time um, because it's in the nature of the future that it is inherently unpredictable. And I'll give you an example of that. Um, my father, who was a developer entrepreneur, um, with, we're Lebanese family. I was born in Lebanon. My father, um, at the time of the Civil War, um, he had a thriving business, a consulting business in Beirut. He had quite a lot of cash sitting in a bank account, and he had quite a lot of real estate um, around the country. So he was, he was doing very well. He was around about 40 years of age at this point. And the civil war erupts. The business is worthless because all of the projects are now suspended. It's not saleable and it's literally actually got costs and no revenue. Uh, that happens overnight. Secondly, the government, uh, there's a run on the banks. So all the cash that he has is frozen. You're only allowed to withdraw the equivalent of $200 a week for groceries. 
And the real estate portfolio that he owns is not saleable other than a distressed price. All of this happens literally within the space of days. And uh, dad is then forced to make a decision after a few months uh, that to, to go to Saudi Arabia, start again with no working capital. He literally um, uh, asks his first German company, which has got a contract to build a hospital in Riyadh, to give him a 10% mobilization fee on the contract, which becomes his working capital. So then he said to me, since that day, he said, I've always kept a portion of my wealth outside of the country of my residence. So um, he said to me, as soon as you can afford it, put a nest egg sufficient to allow you to resuscitate yourself outside of the country. He said, you may think it's inconceivable that anything would happen in Australia, but he said, you just never know. Geopolitical events can turn on a dime. It's not inconceivable that Australia could be threatened militarily by another country. Um, it's, 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 it, there could be a civil war event, riots. Um, there could be a biological threat. Um, there could be an ozone uh, uh, layer rupture that makes living in Australia dangerous. Um, wh whatever it is, he said, just put away 10% at a minimum of your net wealth outside of the country. It's, it's an insurance policy to allow you to quickly uh, resuscitate um, and, and resurrect yourself if you need to in, in a crisis type event. So that's, that's what I did about six or seven years ago. Um, we, we went and bought a whole bunch of residential real estate in Austin, Texas. And, um, and we've, we've just left it there, just, just, just um, letting it um, uh, accumulate over time. And we just keep buying you know, a couple of houses a year. And uh, with a bit of luck, we never need to use it, but it's there if we do. That's really, really interesting that your father's early lessons have now helped to inform your now investment philosophy. Um, it's very difficult for, for, for me to conceptualize that kind of pain and loss, though it's only a generation ago that my parents and my grandparents can tell very similar stories with, you know, their times in Italy and obviously World War II and all sorts of stuff. Um, is, is, so I was, I was going to actually ask you about your investment philosophy because you, you, I've seen you talk about two different things. One is obviously this, where black swan events can happen and then how do we prepare for that? But you also have been, I've noticed you talk about cycles and you talk about property cycles, uh, normal investment cycles and being able to rely upon how, how, how investments can normalize over time. Ah, uh, yes, that's right. Um, yes. Big fan of, you know, just to be, a, to study the long-term pattern of returns um, because it, it's unlikely that an asset will outperform uh, in, in succession, you know, two, say two holding periods of say typically five to 10 years. Um, so if it outperforms for the first seven or eight years, it's unlikely to outperform for the next seven or eight years. And um, what you're really hoping for is either average or sub-average performance before you uh, acquire a, an asset. And then you've got the law of gravity working in your favor, which is to say that the next seven or eight years are likely to be above average to compensate for the last seven or eight years being below average. And would you say that this is 
this this is your investment philosophy to be looking for underperforming assets yes uh, that is one of the it's one of the narratives it's not the only one because um you don't want to be a, a one-trick pony uh, but you typically as a, as a successful investor you want to have four or five thematics that you feel comfortable in exploring for us we have a core competence in urban planning and rezoning so We'll typically will pay a premium for an asset which we believe has redevelopment upside through rezoning because we feel we know how to go about liberating that upside. Clearly looking for um, an asset that has performed poorly in the past is, a, is one of the narratives of saying, well, do we believe we can actually um, treat this asset uh, with a strategy that's different to the previous owner and with a bit of luck, have market forces also help us to, to take the asset to higher ground. Um, we also are active in development. So we'll sometimes buy an asset that's ready to be developed because we've got a development team that can liberate the upside by managing the risks um, of, of the development itself. They're just three thematics that we use. A fourth one is sustainability. So we quite often look for assets that have got low um, neighbors ratings they're not um, efficient in terms of the use of energy and uh, we look to improve their sustainability credentials and then look to market them back to tenants who value sustainability as part of their ethos um, so as you can see this you know we, we will typically have at any given time five or six investment thematics to allow us to find enough opportunities Australia is still a tiny market in commercial real estate. There's only 400 transactions a year that are above $10 million. Um, so, and we typically will, we're looking to do something like eight to 10 of them a year. So, and, uh, and we'll sell for, say, you know, so in a given year, we'll, we'll do 12 deals on the buy and sell side, and there's 800 buy sell. So that's one and a half percent of the Australian market in terms of transaction number. So imagine our tiny little company um, is transacting on 12 of 800 buy-sell transactions in commercial real estate. Um, so that, that if you don't have lots of strings to your bow, you're not going to do too many deals. So you've got to have more. very difficult. Yeah. And, and do you think that um, for, the, for the average investor at home, for someone like myself that's you know not doing large-scale commercial transactions, do you think that having an investment philosophy or an ethos or a way to approach your investments is important? And, and how, how do you go about developing something like this so that you can have this long-term sort of systemic growth, if you will? Yeah, I mean... All of the investment literature now suggests that most of the money is made by picking an investment theme as opposed to uh, precise execution. So it's actually more about which um, board you're throwing the darts at rather than how you're throwing the darts. So as long as you focus on the right darts board, it almost doesn't matter where the, where the, uh, uh, the widget lands, whatever you call that. Um, so I think for, for, uh, for us, picking cities um, is a very important 
um, decision. You know, how did I come to Austin, Texas? Well, I, I ran through 50 cities in the United States and I ran through six or seven filters from population growth uh, to GDP growth to uh, employment growth. Um, and then I looked at a host of cultural parameters because I take the view that a successful city is one which has a thriving arts community. So I wanted to invest in a city that um, that, that valued live music, um, had arts and crafts type events and conferences um, that that had a, um, a thriving, you know, sort of outdoor exercise culture. So, and, and, and I measured, for example, there's indices that measure um, restaurants, cafes per capita, music venues per capita. So when I went through all of those, Austin ranked number one, and I just said, right, I'm putting all of my money into Austin, Texas. I, what I, I didn't do is diversified because I took the view that um, I didn't have a huge amount to, to want to, to split it. So it was easier to manage it. And it's a lot easier. We bought something like 20, 25 houses in Austin, Texas. And what that was a lot easier to do is, is to keep them in the one city. So I didn't have the geographical dispersion. And, and I, I did so on an investment thematic. Now, you might say my particular choice of properties could have been better. I don't doubt it. I'm not an expert in Austin residential. But I dare say because I picked the right city, um, the equity tripled over six years. Yeah. And that's, that's all got to do with the high-level thematic. That's really interesting. I often say to people that you everything works. And, and what I mean by that, it's, you know, you can pick your, your, your theme or you pick your road, whether it's you're a property developer or you're, you're in a subdivide land or, you know, I'm going to pick income, produce, whatever it is, they all work in different ways. Pick your lane and run it really, really well. But what I found fascinating is how you came to choosing Austin, Texas and your, your list of criteria, how you're paying attention to culture, to uh, arts and music, to what's the your urban streetscape, what's it feel like from a you know, a gentrification almost. It feels like you're looking for the cafes, the bars and the restaurants. It's a, a feeling. You're looking for that, 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 that feeling inside of a city. And I feel like a lot of that can be applied to just buying individual investments, even within, say, Melbourne or Sydney or, you know, going house to house. And it's fascinating for an investor like us to hear a global fund manager with billions under development using very similar uh, investment criteria to pick, you know, houses in a, in a growing market. Right. I mean, that's my personal account. Um, I, and uh, we did do some for high net worth who followed us on Austin and we did very well. We bought some commercial real estate in Austin as well. Um, I, I'd say, you know, everything works is, 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 uh, is good. The only thing is um, it works if it's done well. So my, I had a mentor that had a, a, a statement that I use. There's more than one way of being right. I think is is a is a good way of expressing that to stop you from thinking that there's only one or two ways of making money there's actually effectively infinite ways to do it um, but you've each methodology if it's to be successful has to have um, a, a a sort of a secret bullet if you like uh, that um, a silver bullet that that allows you to um, extract value in a way that the rest of the market can't discern um my you know my filter was i took a bet that um 
music and culture will be correlated long term with uh, popularity of a city and livability. And uh, I, I feel like that is intuitively sounds right to me. So, um, and sure enough, uh, Austin regularly hits the top three most livable cities in the in the United States. I, I really like that. It's an interesting approach, and and, and it kind of leads to my next question. Um, what are you seeing the smart money doing at the moment? What are your investors looking for, and what are they? What are they after? Or are they just saying, I'm happy for you to do whatever you want, Adam? Okay. All right. Well, that's a trick question. I've written a blog about that a few years ago because I do get asked the question, of what, where should I invest my money? Or what, are, what would a smart investor invest their money in? And I say, okay, um, what you've just asked me is what's the best move in chess? I can't answer yeah, that. Right. Um, it, you tell me where all the pieces are and I can give you one or two suggestions. But until I know where all the pieces are, it's, it's an impossible question. The best move in chess depends on where all the pieces are. And so I say, look, I'll probably need to ask you something. I've forgotten what it is, 12 or 14 questions. Once you answer 12 or 14 questions, I, begin, I can begin to give you some sensible advice. And they include things like, what is the term horizon for your investment? Do you need liquidity on an annual basis? Um, do you have uh, money invested currently in real estate anywhere in Australia? Um, you know, so it's, what's, what, do you have a hurdle rate of return that you need to satisfy? Um, do you have a preference for capital gains or income? Because you might be a high income earner, so you don't want to receive income. You want it all back-ended in capital gains. What's your risk return profile, your, your risk-loving, risk aversion profile? Um, and uh, so I've written a blog specifically on this. And... Um, and, and it's really my, I, I think it has a reference to chess and the title. And, um, and so my attitude is, I can't answer unless I know you quite at a quite a detailed granular level. But to answer it in a very general way, in commercial real estate, a lot of our institutional investors are very much shifting into industrial, is seen as the darling sector at the moment because of the investment thematic associated with online retail and um, the need for um, a lot of goods and to deliver them at short notice to households. Um, retail is seen as a troubled sector, though it hasn't had a bad, you know, last 12 months has done quite well, particularly restaurants, who I think are benefiting from the lack of other venues that are open, particularly entertainment venues. So the buzz that we once got from a concert, we're substituting now with an additional visit to a restaurant. And uh, office um, is, is um, I think, returning. I, I'm, a, I'm a big believer that work from home will ultimately prove to be an inadequate substitute to working from the office. And um, I've been warning in some of my literature that there will be significant mental health uh, impacts if if uh, if uh, businesses adopt work from home as a as an as a significant alternative, and I think you also lose many of the benefits that occur from collaboration uh, in an office space. So I'm not a big fan of uh, work from home. I am a big fan of remote working, and uh, EG is building. Uh, uh, you know what we, our aspiration is to build a series of. Um, what we call nature hubs within two and a half hours drive of Sydney that can accommodate up to 10 of our staff 
and uh, then we'll, you know, we're encouraging our staff to go together in groups of three, four, five, six, and work together for two, three, four, five days in a nature hut as a way of, because um, all of my observation is that people burn out when they don't get regular access to nature. So nature is the is a really, really good way of um, helping to replenish people's energy system and to de-stress them. I, I feel that there's two really important themes that are, if I'm listening to you carefully, um, one is, and, and I completely agree with you, that humans are inherently social creatures and there are some, I think, long-term systemic issues that will arise if people keep isolating for long periods of time. Uh, and I do believe that people will revert back to offices because all the best things are done with people. You know, you can collaborate ideas. You, you, you've got a sense of camaraderie. There's an energy that comes from having a group of people together that are talking about the same thing and you can achieve much more together than apart. Um, so the question in there is that I take it you believe that we will revert back to um, people coming back into CBDs and there will be some remote working, but, but primarily there will, we will see people come back to CBDs into major uh, hubs. Right. I think so. Yeah, I'm a very big believer in CBDs and Harborside. That they, makes enormous sense to me. I've written a blog about you know, real estate being a network asset. Its value is really from what surrounds it. So one should always be, always say buy, buy property in areas which um, have a lot of smart entrepreneurial people because they'll do great things with their real estate, which will um, very... Uh, directly benefit yours um, and if you if you buy property in an area say where the council is unimaginative anti-development anti-entrepreneurial uh, then inevitably your property will languish um, so you you want to be in areas that are dynamic you want to be in areas um, that are changing um, and uh, you benefit from the creativity and smarts of your neighbors and that is a very good thing to do uh, both in real estate and in life you know when they say that you are um, sort of the average of the seven people you spend time with um that's true of real estate i mean the seven properties that are closest to you will have a very significant impact on on the value of your property and and i think that that's that's really interesting i just recently bought a house uh three hours outside of sydney for the the reasons that you're just describing, it's an area that is evolving. You can culturally see the changes that are happening there. And it's even the little things like, sorry? Where, where is it? Uh, Nelson Bay. Ah, oh, lovely area. Yeah, you can't go wrong. It's a silly it's silly little things, but I like to go into the center of town and see who's, who's doing the coffees. Is there a cool bakery? Is there a nice bar? And every time I've gone there, there's this one bakery. They always sell out of their Anzac biscuits and everything's gone. And what I take from that is I'm, I'm seeing a real cultural shift. There's a real culinary delight when you go there and you can see there's, a, there's a, an artistic vibe in this city and I feel like it's going to change. Now, that actually leads to my next question, which is with this severe lack of connection and the fact that we're not seeing as much tourism, do you think that, that we're gonna, we should anticipate an elastic rebound and seeing a huge 
tourism spike when when the borders do open up and do you see there being an impact on the different areas that are impacted by tourism and that commercial trade and activity oh there's i mean i i think i don't know whether i've written about this but i certainly see that there will be a, a, a sort of a post-covid binge that's going to the number of people that i've spoken to that are you know just chomping at the bit to travel overseas, be it to go and visit relatives um, uh, or, or direct family, um, or just simply to take their kids to see the Eiffel Tower uh, or the Colosseum or whatever it might be. Um, I can assure you um, there will be a massive rush on international tourism as soon as the borders permit. And uh, I think music concerts are desperate to do more off as well. And, um, and so um, I think there will be a kick to the economy um, once the border, international borders open, there, there will be a binge, a consumer binge. I know that my son, who's 11 years of age, is petitioning me to take him to Japan or New Zealand to do some snow skiing because he loves snow skiing. Um, he's also asked me, he's interested in going to see London. He's obviously seen a video or two. So... He said, I would really like you to take me to the UK. And I'm saying, mate, I'd love to. I mean, I, the idea of international travel with my kids really, um, like I, 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 I really look forward to it. In fact, it's one of the joys of parenting is to travel around the world with your kids. So yes, I believe there will be, as soon as the Western world is largely vaccinated, I think we will see um, world GDP go up by half a percent just because of this post-COVID binge. That's fascinating, and, and I, I look forward to that day. Um, talking, talking about your children and, and the fact that you are, as just to bring it full circle, you are a bit of a philosopher, and, and, and it strikes me as quite a, a teacher. Is there, uh, have you got some words of wisdom for uh, new property investors, for people that are entering the market and, and ways that they should be thinking about uh, investing or building wealth? Have you got any sort of little tidbits or bits of philosophy or even tactics they should be adopt? I mean, again, I, I know I'm sounding like a broken record. I, general advice is useful, but it's very limited um, because it, the individual circumstances can vary significantly. But if I was, I, you know, I, I spoke to somebody today for lunch and um, they've got $250,000 and he said to me, um, you know, what should I do? I'm looking to, to, um, to buy my first property. And I said, you can either for that sort of deposit get a, a nice two-bedroom unit in, you know, he's in Wollstonecraft. I said, you probably could get a, a nice two-bedroom unit um, with that sort of deposit. You know, you, you, you can uh, buy something for about a million dollars. Or you can get a rather crappy three-bedroom. And he said, what should I do? And I said, well, you got... You got two kids. Ideally, you want three bedrooms, but from an investment point of view, um, you'd be better off buying in a better building and a better suburb, a two-bedroom unit. From a capital growth point of view, that makes more sense because you're living in it and it's capital gains tax-free. It's your primary residence. So I'd go for the nicer two-bedroom unit because it's going to have better long-term capital growth. And um, And so he took that on board and we're now sort of helping him just as a friend to sort of put find the right property and just 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 purely uh, um, as a freebie. 
And uh, so that's, you know, th that's at a very granular level, a tactical uh, bit, of, bit of tactical advice. Um, you know, if I was to say philosophically, you know, investing, I, I often say to people, the first million dollars of your wealth invested in real estate, uh, preferably residential, because everybody understands that asset class, invested in the city of your residence so that you can at any time. If anything goes wrong with it, you can take immediate control of it. And, um, and make sure that you're investing it close to infrastructure. I mean, it's not complicated. What you want is social infrastructure in the way of schools and hospitals. They're, they're the dominant, um, you know, draw cards for, for families. And, uh, and transport infrastructure, mostly that it has great um, rail and road access. If you get that right, and you stay largely within the sort of 10 to 20 kilometer zone of Sydney, you can't go much wrong. Sydney has had an extraordinary track record of, of delivering 7% capital growth in the case of houses per annum, on average for 70 years. I mean, it's just, it's extraordinary as a city, it just keeps performing. And every time doomsayers come out and say, it's the end, it's the end, it's going to come crashing down, it goes on and rises again. And in my view, I've now reached the view that Sydney uh, residential is driven by um, lifestyle uh, rather than economics. And that uh, such a livable city and such a beautiful city um, that it will continue to attract a loyal international following. And I predict that uh, luxury real estate in Sydney will do extremely well, increasing, because the rich and famous from all over the world will want to have um, a luxury property here. That's brilliant. Adam, I thank you very much for your time today. I know that you're a busy man and, I, and we're probably going over time as it is. Um, it's a we, pleasure, Doc. It's very nice to meet you and, um, and I very much uh, enjoyed talking to you and I think, um, you know, you've done exceptionally well to build the following that you have in the, in the time that you've done it in. And um, I love the fact that you dig what you do and you actually practice what you do. So you're... Uh, you're living the advice you're giving. Um, you're 32, did you say? Yes, 33 in September. Yeah, amazing age. I mean, to be doing what you're doing at 32, the world is at your feet. I'm just turned 50. Um, you've got an extraordinary journey ahead of you, given where you have managed to put yourself so well done. And um, wish you the very best with your um, podcasting and your investment career. Thank you very much, Adam. I really appreciate it. It's um, it's good to to get some perspective from a person that's you know been there, done that. Mm -hmm. Well, let's. I feel I feel I've got uh, you know a bit more being and a bit more doing ahead of me, and uh, I look forward to um, sharing the journey with you. And uh, I'll be watching your progress with great interest, and uh, you can be sure I'll be cheering for you. <laughs>